or attitudes of sexual integrity. The ongoing conversation around sexual needs continues on the ASI podcast. My name would be Russ Shaw, your tour guide uh, on this audio adventure. Coming in at around two hours, this may feel more like an audiobook. Yes, sexual needs, and this is a long chapter, right? Uh, Not that these chapters are numbered either, okay? You don't have to go back and listen to the old ones. Some of this, and not just the series, but the podcast as a whole, although there can be some good behavior mod stuff in season one, but now it's 2019, I've gleaned much more wisdom. Season six, kind of a cautionary tale in hopes that you, the listener, don't fall into some of the same shame-ridden pits and traps that I did. Season six, season is fixing some of it. To ensure you don't miss an episode, hit that subscribe button. As promised, sexual needs. This is part four, but it's a good place to start too. The title is Fantasies. right into it oh man for months maybe even years i've been excited to get into this topic and expound on it and i feel i finally have some of the 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 tools to properly articulate the this topic whatever properly means for someone like myself let's do this properly i'll do the best i can as one who identifies as uh, professionally unprofessional. But yeah, man, the reason I'm excited about it is even though it's pretty heavy, it's pretty weighty, there's also a lot of life and sunshine and springtime and sunbeams and cloud bursts of rain and growth and beautiful blossoming hopefulness. In, in this particular topic in the sexual needs series. And, and I haven't done a sexual needs show since, you know, the beginning of the year. So I'm like, all right, I'm due. I'm going to tackle this subject. And, you know, all these things start happening in, in my life, in my wife and I's life, really. Uh, it's funny how coincidence, right? Uh, 
my wife's van breaks down. Like she's got her own little business or she sells stuff. You know, she gets at estate sales and things like this and, and, uh, resells them online. And, and her, her van broke down, uh, the van that I used to use for pizza, it's got 430,000 miles on it. So it was the overheating. So I had to fix that. My daughter, her Jeep broke down. And uh, she went and bought a radiator. Hey, can you put this in for me, Dad? And I'm like, sure, it'll be easy. No, <laughs> it wasn't easy. Uh, so her her Jeep broke down, and then my van started acting up. Uh, the van that I make a living in out there driving, um, the front wheel, when I pushed on the accelerator, uh, started wandering on me, right? Like all of a sudden I would push on the accelerator or the van would shift and the front wheel would like, whoop, like it would wobble a little bit. And I'm like, oh man, that needs to be taken care of right away. Um, so that, and not just that, and keep in mind, all this stuff is happening within like middle of April, the month of May, uh, when I decide to take this on. My wife, who is also an Avon lady, like that's another part-time business of hers, her car, her, her little Kia Opta, we have three cars, right? And two of them are paid off. One of isn't, um, but the two that are paid off have a lot of miles on them. So her brakes go are going haywire. So all of our vehicles are breaking down, including our daughter's vehicle, who has moved out. You know, we're like empty nesters now. I was excited to fix my daughter's vehicle because, you know, here she comes to dad like, hey, dad, I need you, you know, and I get to see my daughter and and help her in a, in a time of need, being the blessed problem-solving presence, you know, mechanic dad. And right after I finished that horrible job, my wife's brakes go out, van starts overheating, my front wheel starts wandering all over the road. Just boom, boom, boom. All the while, this emotion and creative energy and reflecting on some of my therapy and relationships with pastors and clergy, you know, I'm ready to get into it. I'm going to take on the challenge of sexual fantasies and what that looks like for people who suffer from compulsive sexual behavior. All of a sudden, you know, I, I want to take this on and then I'm having to deal with the, the troubles and struggles of life <laughs> and distract me away from from thinking about this topic. It was just very interesting. Um, but it's this this is sort of like an audiobook, All right. If there's an audiobook series that I wanted to do or maybe chapters, it would be the sexual needs shows. And this is uh, this is another one, man. Um, wanted to take care of a few orders of business right out of the gate. ASI247.org is the website for this here podcast. If you want to see what a vintage, uh, like like the vinyl of websites looks like, <laughs> go to ASI247.org. And while you're there, you'll see a banner. ASI's wonderful sponsor, BetterHelp. 
is uh, there on the website, asi247.org. There's a link to BetterHelp, or you can just go to betterhelp.com slash therapists to find uh, someone to, to help you on this journey of life, to help be the the narrator of your story, right? That's what's great about therapists. They can see some of our blind spots. They can see some of the trajectory and the gifting of our lives and help us you know, be kind of like guides. That's what I love about therapy. And now you don't have to go thumbing through the phone book or ask your friend, right? Hey, do you see a therapist? Maybe I could see yours. Um, betterhelp.com. Again, um, I don't get a lot of money for that. Yes, they did pay me, but it's it's barely anything. All right. I just, I'm just ecstatic that the, the, this place exists. And this is a, uh, someone I could finally feel good about, um, actually sponsoring the website, ASI247.org. But yeah, lots of good information on the website as well as things to do. There's surveys there on the survey page. Um, there's uh, You can go to the classic ASI website from back in the day, vintage 2005, as well as the become a co-producer button. You know, go to the website. You can donate there. Uh, but also, you don't even have to go to the website thanks to Venmo. Uh, Venmo me, right? You can Venmo me now at symbol... C. Russ Shaw, all one word. The letter C, Russ Shaw, all one word. If you want to, you know, pay a donation, right? This is kind of a, a pay it forward sort of audiobook adventure, right? If there's anything that this helps you in your life, throw out a donation on Venmo uh, to pay for this here audio material. You're also helping co-produce it, uh, put it out there in the world. So uh, thank you for that. But yeah, man, seriously, even a, a buck... A dollar store discount um but yeah if you get any any value out of this uh, i hope i pray that you would put together throw out a uh, a venmo my way again at the letter c r-u-s-s-s-h-a-w yes three s's in there uh become a co-producer um donating paying for the audio book series <laughs> helping to finance that invest in this going forward and that's what i love about venmo it's it's super easy um even easier than paypal yes you could pay me on paypal as well russ at asi247.org that's my the paypal way to pay and my email address as well Uh, but venmo is just it's just a little quicker it's a little easier my daughter, who paid for various auto parts that I had to get for her Jeep, is like, can I just Venmo it to you, Dad? I'm like, oh, okay, I got to do Venmo. <laughs> All right. Dana has been trying to get me to sign up on it for a while. Dana's my wife, who's been using it for her business, offer up, let go, you know, Facebook Marketplace. So, yes, Venmo in your app store. Super easy if you don't have it. Um, and I would again certainly appreciate the investments towards the sexual needs series as well as the asi podcast um your donations and generous uh co-producer energies are greatly appreciated um, especially during this time of need (laughs) right Uh, my wife and i woke up this morning and 
we asked Siri, like it's one of those mornings where we kind of woke up late and it, we were thinking, you know, Friday morning, I usually start work late. She was getting ready to go to a customer. We were talking about how we used to like go out to breakfast and we, we, we don't even have money to, to actually eat breakfast even at our own home. Like things are so tight. Again, it's not just that the cars broke down and we need to fix them, but both of our business rely on us driving right? She needs to go get stuff, pick stuff up, deliver stuff. Um, I pick up people, drive people around the Seattle metro area. And, you know, not just the fact that, yeah, we got to fix these vehicles, but that our income comes to a screeching halt when vehicles aren't running. So this morning, my wife and I are laying there. I get up, you know, what should we eat for breakfast? I come back in the bedroom. My wife is laying there and I say, what do you want? What should we eat for breakfast? I don't know what we're going to do. And, and she goes, I don't, I don't know either. So I ask Siri, right? I go, Hey Siri, what should we eat for breakfast when we're broke? So my iPhone randomly pulls up this article on uh, what, why you shouldn't eat off the dollar menu at rest, these fast food restaurants, right? Like when you're broke and you have very little money, the easiest and most tempting thing to do when we're triggered by hunger here in my country, anyway, here in the United States, most of these fast food restaurants have a value menu and you can get something through the drive through for a buck like a, a hamburger for a dollar at McDonald's or something like that. But the article was saying that actually what happens when you do that is a lot of this food is engineered to just make you hungrier. So you get a dollar cheeseburger uh, or a dollar nuggets or something like that. And, and a lot of that food, it, it's not nourishing your body, A. And B, it's actually designed to make you feel hungrier after eating it. And that reminded me of what happens when we take our sexual fantasy life and we outsource it to pornography. Like we tune out the sexual needs within our body and we turn up porn noise. Like we're seeking touch and connection and the nourishment that comes from that and we end up touching a screen. Like the porn industry creates fantasies for us. And then in a lot of these fantasies end up becoming, and not even that they're fantasies, they're just, it's just porn. And that's where we can get into the language of actual needs and perceived needs. You know, like I talked about in the show early in the early days when my counselor said, Russ, if you don't have an orgasm today, you're not going to die. I'm like, oh, for some reason that was like almost an epiphany for me. But when you're in the throes of sexually compulsive behavior, it really feels like a need. There's a bumper tune by a listener, Darren, who who suggested this this song by Steve Vai called Aching Hunger. I've played to, to bump some of the shows in the past because it feels like an aching hunger, the need, right? We're looking to be nourished. We're looking, and here's another word that that article used too. We're looking to be satiated. Right. In other words, to feel filled. And that's an interesting topic among psychologists and behavioral science around food and nutrition today is avoiding foods that when you eat them, they actually make you feel hungry still. 
and maybe engineered is the wrong word. Like, you know, these companies are in some conspiracy to make you eat more <laughs> fast food. <laughs> it's not, it's not a stretch, right? Like I'm not going to put it past them, but honestly, just empty carbohydrates, for example, are going to like your body thinks it's getting food, but then another part of your body is going, no, we're not, we're not nourished yet. Keep feeding me. Again, feeling the need to consume and eat, our bellies and our bodies are feeling the need to be nourished. And that is exactly what this food is not designed to do off the dollar menu. And the article went on to say that there's actually really nourishing foods that you can get uh, if you have running water and electricity in your home um, at a grocery store. And you can eat way better uh, for way less than even a dollar a meal. And it had me thinking, is this what the good parts of theology, religion, the church have been trying to communicate to a hurting culture, but they've been just doing it really poorly or kind of stuck back in in a way of thinking that's blind. And Jesus even talked about this, right? When referring to the Pharisees, who were the religious elites of his time. You've probably heard that saying. It's it's still a thing in pop culture, the blind leading the blind, right? You know where that comes from? It comes from Matthew 23 and Jesus uh, criticizing religious people. <laughs> True story. It had me thinking about blinkers on, on, on a horse. I'm kind of a fan of horse racing, uh, although I don't gamble <laughs> very much anymore. I still like horse racing. I think it's, a, it's an interesting sport, you know, with these animals. And one of the things that horse, that what they do is they'll put blinkers on a horse to, to keep them from being distracted by things that are going on, you know, outside of their track or the lane that they're supposed to be in. And it's interesting, in metaphor, how uncomfortable Christians especially get when talking about sex, and especially sexual fantasies. Imagine being in a Bible study and saying, hey, um, I'd, I'd really like to hear about your sexual fantasies. <laughs> how would that go down? A quick Google search of fantasies, you put that word in, uh, here's what comes up. And I love this. This is beautiful. Very poignant to what I'm going to talk about here today. Uh, most fantasies, whether conscious or unconscious, serve a specific purpose. They can be entertaining, distracting, frightening, or in the case of sexual fantasies, arousing. And some of what we talk about here is when when arousal goes awry right when it becomes disruptive and that's a big part of my story there was a time when arousal for me was very disruptive in my life caused all sorts of issues um so that's why i wanted to talk about fantasies today because fantasies aren't bad they're just not bad but sometimes it feels very disruptive so as a younger man with not a lot of money, I started looking around for some remedies to this out of control arousal I was experiencing, and it seemed the church had some answers. But that's all I knew. If sex is a problem, I mean, the church certainly implies that. 
And while I think that, you know, they have good intentions, uh, learning, there's something that Jay Stringer said in his book, Unwanted, uh, learning about sex in the church is like trying to cook when you've only been taught about food poisoning. And the fruit of that today is that, you know, most people don't go to the church for sex advice. Unless you grew up in it and you're somehow familiar with it as a social norm. They've been talking about the, quote, biblical definition of sexual purity, um, abstinence. Like, it sounds good on paper, but fast forward to the 21st century and we're seeing some of the ripple effect of that kind of teaching where compulsive pornography use among Christians is like epidemic, they're calling it. Johnny Cash reminds me of a, a song he wrote from back in the day. Uh, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And in Western society, there's just rampant sexual dysfunction there. And the church, right? And this is part of my passion, part of why I'm still a Christian. And, and you know, this this idea that Jesus talking about being a city on a hill, you know, um, this living water that flows and nourishes and that you drink from and you don't, you know, you don't have to go back to the to the junk food anymore. If you drink this living water that I have, th like, is that religious bullshit or is it true? And I'm saying it's true. I'm saying it's real. Um, but the church is still stuck in. Uh, yeah. So. This had me uh, thinking about uh, on onward <laughs> on the topic of sexual fantasies. Um, that word "satiated," I would argue that probably a hundred percent of our sexual fantasies find us hopefully in the mental thinking on of sexual satiation. Uh, I heard a, a pastor. A pastor who's a friend of mine talking about that and I even uh, was inspired to share some of it in this show uh, and here's again where season six I'm trying to correct some of the stuff I've said in the past but one of the one of the things that that I was unpacking was uh, the film Charlotte's Web um, I don't know if you've seen Charlotte's Web it's a great film you should see it it's, a, it's an American classic it's an animated film about a spider and a pig Right, the relationship between a spider and a pig, um, but in the in the in the story, there's this character Templeton who becomes sort of a spy-like character. You know, he's 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 a rat. That's his. That's what he is, right? He's a rat, and you know, he's kind of the. I could relate to the rat Templeton, right? Like being an ex-criminal and such myself. Um, but Templeton. Uh, like he always wants uh, what's in it for me. Like he's kind of got this sort of attitude going on. So they're going to slaughter poor Wilbur. Right. And so he's trying to sneak into the fair to, to run interference, you know, and, and he gets into the fair 
where this is supposed to go down. And he's like, you know, he asks, well, what's in it for me? And they go, dude, have you ever been to a fair? You know, all the food. Just imagine the piles of garbage, right, that you are going to experience when you get in there to the fair. Uh, and sure enough, you know, he gets in there and you just think about fair food. Right. You talk about something that's not completely healthy or nourishing, you know, like a like a three pound brick of French fries, you know, curly fries. Have you seen those or or, or corn dogs? You know, it's like corn wrapped in in processed meat, stuff like that. Bacon on a stick dipped in chocolate, you know, things like this. So so Templeton goes in there and, and, and it's a picture of satiation. Right. So Templeton goes in there. He feels himself to where his belly is protruding so much that he can't even walk, you know. And this was me and and my friend Dan, uh, my pastor friend, uh, unpacking satiation. But is that what it means to be satiated? Because, because the psychology around nutrition says that that's what our bodies are seeking to be, is satiated meaning filled to where you don't need anymore until you burn the energy that is properly given to your body and and you get hungry again. You're not overeating. You're not unhealthy packing on. I should talk. I, I'm, I'm thinking about this right now because I'm, I'm overweight as we speak. So this is part of where, where I'm at as well. Um, sex and food, man. Tell you what. So one of the questions that I throw out in this podcast and in some of the work I do is how did we get to the place in, in religious organizations where we've created an environment where we, if we're honest, we will no longer be honored because to be human and to have flaws makes you unhonorable? How did we get here? How did we get to the place where, where that is a thing. I, I think a lot of it has to do with certainty. Jay Stringer makes this point so eloquently in his book. And this is something I saw as a former, you know, criminal drug dealer, crazy person. It seemed like in that world, people seemed to be a lot more honest, at least emotionally. And I think it's important to be honest about how we're working things out, you know, not just with our diets, but and and having a need um but I, I, how what that looks like in action uh, you know thinking about bill hybels and guys like james mcdonald bill hybels used to do this annual message on character integrity and accountability partners and community um and it's really hard to look at him the same way now you know when you when you live a secret life like that how how do we have honor when we don't have honesty and that is sort of what's coming apart in the church right now is these big mega church pastors who set themselves up to have all the answers right like they want to feed the certainty addiction in their parishioners so they can't show their flaws because if they do they won't receive that honor again jay stringer's book unwanted and that honor and honesty such a good point 
And it had me thinking about some of the church history in our country. And the question arises, you know, do we try and push down our sexual fantasies and, and, you know, sexual thought life because things got so bad because of fear, right? Fundamentalism becoming a thing maybe after World War II where we saw the depravity of how really bad it can get with, with Hitler, for example. So you know, we, we swang the pendulum all the way over to, to just feeding on this idea of certainty and having the answers. And you fast forward uh, 70 years and, and here we are faking our way to megachurch pastors who can't possibly be perfect for everyone, even though that seems to be the message they keep preaching and then they keep showing up on the front pages of newspapers for not the good things either, right? You know, some of this behavior stuff starts with little things and you start sharing that with other people and living your life in the light as he is in the light, right? And then you do course corrections. But instead, we don't share it or, you know, religious organizational heads of state don't share it with anyone. And then it tends to metastasize, right? even becomes malignant in their heart and in their attitude towards others and in their creative, right, the, the creativity, the God-given creativity in them starts to learn how to preach fear-based sermons around sexuality while in the dark, right, off camera and off mic, living secret double lives and subconsciously preaching sermons that encourage this kind of living. And the thing that startles me is this lack of urgency. How do we get here? I just think there should be some curiosity around where we're at and why. And for some of you who aren't Christians, stick with me because a lot of this is uh, what I'm trying to communicate is both personal and universal, right? Like we can see it in community. That's where the the exercise function of communication works with Christian theology. Like we're seeing how these emotional value systems are working themselves out. This is also where I don't see um, psychology and theology as mutually exclusive. For example, Psychology 101, don't think about the pink elephant on the unicycle and what do you automatically think about right um you should never do that because that is the worst thing ever that you shouldn't ever do and what do we automatically get curious about can't stop thinking about and ultimately want to do uh romans 7 paul talking about you know, the thing that I should do, I don't do. And the thing that I, I shouldn't do, uh, I do, right? That's in the Bible. Again, that's Romans 7, and it's not a super popular verse among fundamentalists. And maybe for me personally here, a little history lesson on the bad fruit that I've seen in my life from some of this fundamentalist thinking and exposure. 
for Christians who grew up in this sort of Calvinist, even assemblies of God, like major Protestant isms, Baptist, Presbyterian, any denomination heavy organization with the Protestant worldview, there's this idea that we are totally sinful pieces of garbage. And without the blood of Christ, without what Jesus did on the cross, that God is somehow this this dark figure that stands behind Jesus and Jesus saved us, right? Like, like God the Father wants to destroy you, hates your guts because you're a, a sinful, horrible abomination. Uh, so, so that's the thinking behind where I was at at the time. Um, very Jesus-heavy dissection of the Trinity, really, of God's character. Um, and listen, I'm not pro-Catholic either. Catholics, you know, there's there's some priest who is your authority. I mean, crack open a newspaper. We see how that's working out, all right? The Roman Catholic Church has zero integrity as far as I'm concerned. This heartbreaking story in Boston of all these kids that were molested by priests there, um, I actually created a, a meme from this priest who like smiling for the cameras after being busted and I, I, I put underneath it uh, the the caption that read with him smiling right being dragged away in handcuffs uh, I said what if the biggest lie of the devil was not that he doesn't exist what if the biggest lie of the devil was trust him he's ordained Catholic priest. You got to trust the ordained Catholic priest because he's a mouthpiece for God. Uh, just, oh, don't get me started. I digress a little, but it's still that same Catholic uh, theology, that very shamey worldview. But both religions, similarly, you know, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is, you know, giving and forgiving. And, but, you know, God the Father. The holy divinity, creator of the universe, believes I'm garbage? Needed to murder his own son so he could lay eyes on me? So he could love me? How is I to, how is anyone to discern healthy relationships with that kind of worldview? Honestly, deep down. Atonement theory is what it's called in theological circles, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. Uh, it, it can really play havoc on our uh, ability to ha to create well-being for our lives in our hearts and in our minds. And when it comes to our private thoughts about what goes on with our privates, because, listen, everyone has sexual fantasies, all right? And how are you processing that? You know, you dirty thing, these images and visions and, and you know, stories that your mind is, is expounding on, these sexual, oh, you're dreaming of fornicating, aren't you? You know, sticking poor Jesus up there on that cross again, aren't you? And I'm also a male sexual assault survivor. So while I thought I had a good bead on things and that I was part of a healthy spiritual community, 
and and this kind of quantified the shame. Yes, even though I had the bomb squad, right? I talked about that in some of those early shows. I had my uh, my Christian family and and my guys and Pastor Dan and Rick. Even though I had all that, just with the damage that was in me at the time, the way shame, this feeling of shame in my body, and this lack of, dare I say, true image of God, right? This, this, and today, and part of it's the work I've done, the healing work I've done, the therapy I've been through. I have more of an orthodox worldview. So today, you know, my relational, emotional toolbox when it comes to trust and relationship and, and who is God, the divine, back then, at the time, unsolvable dissonance of, you know, the love of Jesus with this dark figure standing behind him, you know, like a drill sergeant, you know, this heretical God the Father holding Satan, you know, the devil on a leash like some pit bull or something just waiting to sick the devil on me if I think about vaginas or oral sex reminds me of that old 80s metal song uh, electric eye right I take pride in probing all your secret moves my tearless retina takes pictures that can prove I'm made of metal my circuits gleam I am perpetual. I keep the country clean. Electric eye, right? Judas Priest <laughs> back in the day. But that's that's what I'm talking about. Like, is God that? Or is God Jesus? Is God love? That's that unsolvable mindfuck dissonance I'm talking about. But it's based on our core identity, not just being wired for sin, but evil but the identity that that i'm bad at my core based on what i've been through uh, it was not super healthy looking back in my quiet times when it came to those sexual fantasies and those sexual thoughts that the the arousal that came cascading down on me in in some of the moments of my life the feeling of arousal in my body coupled with these thoughts. Thoughts birthed out by the system of morality that had embedded itself in my own moral code. And it seemed like that conflict in my body and mind and heart had its own kind of feeling. Like echoing back to the times of, of being an awkward teenager. In the times where I felt the chaotic house was empty... And maybe even in those times felt safe. The way my body was working to find peace, even. Moments where I was just looking for a little shelter. And maybe that's what I'm exposing here or trying to articulate is to see the shelter, you know. And for me, this music started playing in the background especially during those moments of arousal especially in the moments where I, I finished the arousal 
to masturbation, to orgasm, to feeling like this was the soundtrack of all of that. I'm a bad, bad man, don't you understand? I'm a bad, bad man, best you turn and rain. Yes, little Derek Minor there ending out a string of bumpers that emotionally, right? I've talked about that feeling, the the feeling of being the bad boy or, or you're just bad. But in this episode, when it comes to fantasies, This is something I think that for a long time in the show, in the early days, season one especially, uh, I linked my sexual fantasy life, again, to causing the unwanted behavior. And I talked a lot about snuffing it out. And sure, when the compulsive train got rolling, uh, some of it was. But the fact that I felt at the time... My behavior, my unwanted behavior was kept at bay. You know, I had this passion to tell my own story and to even teach some of the things I learned along the way from my perspective, right? To talk about how I got here, right? That kind of thing. And so uh, I did, I, I, I was very all up in my head, so to speak. This brokenness of my core being, this um, confusion around my core values. All right. I talk a lot about mystery, being a mystic in this show, uh, and, and not being a certainty addict. 
But one thing I, I also want to uh, explain one of these days, it's probably another show, but confusion is not what happens when you shed your certainty addiction. All right. But for me at this time, I, I hadn't worked this stuff out yet. Like I was still in the process of learning what I'm going to do because I, I, you know, from the show starts in November of 2005, I go from 2005, November to summer of 2006 without telling the whole story. The fact that I was with multiple prostitutes and hadn't um, told anyone that yet. Until I told this Christian counselor who told me to keep it on the DL. So it was helpful to at least tell him. And again, this is why feelings are important and emotions and why Jesus used words like burdened. You feel a burden. But still the secrets and the solving of the dissonance with, well, Jesus paid your sin debt. No one has to know that did not alleviate the shame. Because in the quiet times, it's still not on me. And looking back, I think what he may have been doing is intellectualizing burdens. Like, you shouldn't feel that way. Mm. So fast forward to me calling BS on that. Confessing to my wife. Opening up to her. Releasing my secrets. And accidentally burning my house down and the main way I was holding back the floodgates of shame and guilt disgust towards myself was I'm fine and so the message I had been given the intellectual cognitive technology and it wasn't just this transactional thing that I understood but I felt and honestly looking back and not you know, sinking into the Christian habit of ignoring feelings, all right? Embracing some cognitive science that says that stuff's actually important. Reading the Psalms and, and just full of emotion and feeling. And while, yeah, I may have felt like a prisoner set free, my own value for myself, if I was honest about how I felt, I didn't feel redeemed. Like my friend Seth Taylor's book, right? Feels like redemption. No, it felt like justification, honestly. Justification with a pinch of entitlement. Jesus paid that sin debt. And look at me, right? In Christian terms, I was like sexually pure at the time. Not looking at porn, not even wanting to. Being purely loyal to my wife and her being my only sexual outlet. I didn't masturbate at all for like seven years during the process of this uh, this podcast, this thing that I'm doing. And even my first Christian SA counselor would say things like that. Like, we're going we're gonna to get the behavior under control and you never have to tell her, you know. But that's not integration. That's not being a whole person. That's not relationship. And it wasn't even guilt so much as this broken feeling inside me. You know, that's that's your demons, right? In culture and especially in recovery, you know, 
he or she has to deal with their demons. We know what that references as a metaphor, but for me, the meaning of that wasn't entirely clear. Later on, I had learned that breaking the word down, that word demon means to, to divide, to take a whole and to divide it. That's one of those interesting things about getting to the definitions of words. You know, that made a lot of sense to me. Because what was it that was speaking to me? And in, and again, in the quiet times, these thoughts of wasn't Jesus paying that sin debt on the cross enough? I still had that, you know, again, that lyric, can't go a week without doing wrong. Jay Stringer talks about sages, you know, and, and listening to podcasts. And for me, a lot of it was music, songs like that. Some of my sages were musicians that were tapping into a, a, an emotion, a feeling that hadn't worked itself out yet. And while I'd heard that song later, you know, in life after, you know, my confession and a lot of this relational trauma, I heard that song and I'm like, oh, that's that's a familiar feeling. That's a folk rock band from Austin, Texas. The Devil Makes Three, they're called. That's why I find music important. And some of the music we're attracted to because it identifies some of those feelings that are that are living in there. Music for me has been, I feel like it saved my life, right? Much like a, a doctor will use a stethoscope to listen to your heart and, and find, right, things that we can't identify on the cognitive surface, you know. And also that song by B.B. Uh, Renault. I think is her name is talking about, you know, it's going to be a good, good life. My therapist says, you know, a very familiar feeling for me, you know, sitting through sermons at church and yeah, my therapist says that too. Right. And, and, but in the quiet times, there's still, I'm a mess. When I started the show, I would say stuff like that too. Like I'm a disaster. I used to, right? I'm still, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but at the same time, I have been able to recover a lot of those broken pieces. It was, it's just an interesting place that I was in, um, referring to myself as a disaster. You're listening to a broken, messed up disaster of a human being. Um, not that I'm much farther, but I like to feel like I'm in a better, way better place than I was when I was referring to myself as such. And and hopefully some of you can relate to her and, and to the Devil Makes Three, that song that, uh, man, I can't go a week without doing wrong, even helps identify our blind spots and sex, Man, especially our secret fantasy sex life, especially for Christians or those who grew up Catholic or religious with heavy, heavier emphasis on morality. Because for, for us who grew up in, in religion, it's, it's not just that we don't do that because it's bad or um, because it's not helpful because it, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not good for other people. It's like, who who do you want to be, right? Like, these messages aren't necessarily 
given to us, but what is given to us is that there's a there's a God up there that sees everything we do, and there's a a place for good people and a place for bad people, and it just gets very convoluted. And that's what I wanted to touch on here because it's not just the you know the hypocrisy or feeling like a hypocrite or you know that you're a bad boy or that I'm a bad boy that I was you know I mean for me it was in and out of jail stuff like that but what I want to touch on here is that during the quiet times again me asking you the listener something to think about what what does it say to you is there shame in there speaking to you in the quiet times and really for you Christians you know well Jesus paid my sin debt Uh, is that working really was it debt was Jesus just a banker or an uh, attorney that's something I've contended since I've started this show that you know God's pursuit of me even salvation of me was done without my permission, right? Like I wasn't, I wasn't seeking it or, or running after it. Yes, I did have that kind of altar call moment, but that's, you know, again, we talk about religion and relationship, right? You hear it's kind of a popular thing in Christianity today. And I've talked about it on this show that it's not, you know, if you, if you value religion, and you chase religion, you you might get some peace and comfort in that, but it's it's not it's it's not going to settle your soul, right? It, it doesn't meet the the thirsty heart. Um, religion, so so it's about relationship, and we use the language of relationship, like God has a relationship with you, and and describing the cross, and but really that's a, that's a small Jesus. All right, because if Jesus is just a banker or he just gave you an acquittal, there's no love and relationship in that. See, at the beginning of time, if you've seen the father, you've seen me. All right. There's there's union. There's union. There's not separation. And if we believe that, um, really believe it. We're still constantly trying to solve the dissonance between how is our relationship with God. There's that little divide, you know, and the cross is in the middle, and you walk across the cross bridge. I, I'm, I screwed up again, right? I can't do a week without doing wrong, so where am I at with God? That, that dissonance gets stirred up in our heart, and we don't feel the union that we have in Christ. And Christians, listen, this unity language is all over your Bible, all right? Acts 17, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed God's offspring. That's Paul, by the way, quoting a a pagan poet of the day that was a popular, like, song in the first century. Um, We have union. We are in Christ. That decision was made without your permission. That is ancient Christian theology from the desert, from the first century, from the apostles. The message translation puts it this way, and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. 
He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. We can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well. We are God's created. Well, if we are God's created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think he could hire a sculptor to chisel a god out of stone for us, does it? Yet that's what a lot of popular Christian theology does. The stone and chisel has been replaced with intellectual ideology and volumes and volumes of doctrine and theology books with substitutionary atonement, with banker Jesus, with acquittal Jesus. It's very interesting. And it feels so very contractual, like this uh, acquittal has been done or this debt has already been settled. So you can feel better about that. And what does that stir up in the heart of someone like myself in my story at the point where I realize I've got to tell my wife, right? I've got to let her in on who she's actually married to. I tell my friend, Pastor Dan, Pastor Dan Hazen there at AC3, I I tell him um, the depths of my sexual addiction dysfunction, my secrets. Uh, I told another human being that I, right, not just the sexual abuse this time. This was, this was the affairs, multiple. Uh, and he says, Russ, you're going to have to tell your wife. And I, I know, I know I am. And he says, you know, again, like the bomb squad I talked about in this show, we bring some people in and She's got people around her to contain the blast because this is going to be like a bomb going off to break this news to her. It was devastating. And then we have a house fire. So my wife is still in L.A. after I told Pastor Dan this, right? And I'm making hamburgers on the grill in the backyard and I'm cooking french fries in the stovetop in the house and and I got the french fries out and you know my daughter and I are eating in the backyard July hot day nice day and my neighbor comes running over and tells me that the kitchen is on fire I had actually ran outside and grabbed a garden hose and turned it on full blast and put out the fire in the kitchen And the flames were actually coming out the back door. That's how bad it was before I realized the kitchen was on fire. Um, But the the fire went up the uh, flue, right, where you turn on the fan, sucks the smoke out from the stovetop. Yeah, the flames went up into that and caught the upstairs on fire inside the wall, inside the attic, right? The fire department shows up. Got one of the pets out. Our dog ran back in the house. I had to go get the dog before. And then the fire department, one, we lost one of our birds. Um, the fire department did a great job, uh, but also had to dump some 20,000 gallons of water onto our house and, you know, everything we owned. Um, the basement was actually okay, but most of the basement... 
but everything else was either smoke damaged or water damaged that was upstairs. And so we had to move out into a, uh, well, for uh, hotels for a while until they found us a rental. And it took about six months to get back in our house. But emotionally, where I was, right after the fire, I had a friend, my friend James, who's been on the show, um, brought his trailer, you know, like camping trailer, and I and I camped outside of our house, you know, our burnout house, and I would go in to use the bathroom, and it was just, you know, ashes and water and soot. And it's funny, you know, that weird thing in me, the egoic survival mechanism. I, I wanted to be outside my house because I didn't want someone stealing our stuff. I mean, the insurance company replaced the stuff, but for some reason I'm out there like waiting, worried that looters were going were gonna to flood into the house because, you know, they broke the door down and there was big holes in the, in the roof where they chainsawed through to get put the fire out. So my daughter stayed at my mom's house, stayed with grandma. I still have this old picture. This was 2006, by the way. So this would be, what, 12, 13 years old of my daughter and I right after the fire. And she's actually come to think of it. It might have been during the fire. She's got both hands kind of tucked under her chin, leaning into me. I've got arms around her. And she's looking at our house, got this look of horror and sadness on her face. And this horrible accident happens, right? Accident on my part. I've displaced my family, feeling like a, a like, oh my God, how could this happen, right? How could I have been so careless? And then knowing what I told Dan and the fact that my wife was coming back from LA and Dan's like, you guys, you still got to tell her, man. Right. You got to tell her. And so these two traumas are happening at the same time or close to the same time. My wife gets a phone call while she's visiting family in LA that the house was you know burnt and we had to move out um she comes back and another week later she gets another huge horrible dose of news hey there are some things about me i think you should know now close your eyes and listen carefully Yes, Steve Vai. That's from the album Fire Garden. Same album with that song Aching Hunger on it. Um, also, there's a Spotify playlist for this uh, here podcast, if I haven't mentioned that yet. ASI Podcast Bumps on Spotify. You can follow the uh, playlist. Listen to the songs in their entirety. Follow the bands if you like the bands. That's how I keep my, my nose clean with the recording industry. 
Um, so think of where I'm at at this point, right? Like, this is also the time, by the way, I think the first time I mentioned Mark Driscoll's name from Mars Hill Church in Seattle um, was in a show that I actually recorded in in that uh, that trailer that my my friend lent me. Um, and the church was there for me, right? As much as they could be, they, they did the best they could, you know. Uh, people in community, we did the bomb squad kind of thing that I talked about in the show before I confessed myself, talked about how to do it because I'd put a lot of thought behind it. Um, had Dan and Rick in the room and what I mean that wasn't done perfectly right uh, but th- this is a human thing um, trying to contain the blast um, and of course my wife is devastated I had let down people in the church people in our community group you know doing a also doing a men's group kind of thing and I'm like the 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 porn guy, right? The anti-porn guy, and I'd been on the radio, and I got a quasi-successful podcast on the topic, and and here I am divulging how bad it really was. So in this season of my life, in this chapter of this uh, work, right, known as the ASI podcast, this body of work. Um, I, the, the recording of it is interesting because there's a record of where my heart was. So I'd spent almost a year turning my guns on sexual fantasies, right? Or, or sexual thought life. And then I started unpacking the, the very scary fact of my childhood sexual assault being a male abuse survivor starting to pull at some of those very stuffed down dormant memories and how they were affecting me emotionally as an adult which is part of what led to my confession because I didn't want to fake it anymore I didn't want to be um, a man, you know, cloaked by secrets. And if you love something, setting it free is exactly what I was doing. If, if she wanted to stay, that was great. But if she wanted to leave, that was okay too, because I had done this. I had hurt her. And a lot of folks at the church, you know, they didn't respond to this well my wife lost friends um i lost friends uh and this is not ac3's fault all right dan and rick were great through this whole thing they don't control how other people in the church um, are going to react to to something like this especially when i was such a public person I'd stopped doing the podcast, by the way, episode 40. I wasn't sure if I'd ever even do it again. Uh, And this is also about the time I heard of this shock jock pastor in Seattle, Mark Driscoll, right? 
and, and started to really like him. And we started double dipping and eventually just started going to Mars Hill because it got so socially awkward and weird at AC3 and the fact that AC3 is in Marysville we lived in Everett there was going to be an Everett campus of Mars Hill Church um, things like this going on and at the time I had no idea Mark Driscoll was a, a man of secrets and power and ego and bully um, a man with a lot of his own sexual angst although the fall of Mars Hill didn't have to do with anything sexual like that but he there was a lot I mean he wrote uh, books on it um, this was there was a lot of you know purity stuff going on at Mars Hill and later on it became pretty obvious that Mark didn't have the tools to handle his own you know egoic desires or uh, flow of life, right? Like you could replace egoic or egocentric also with flesh or pride. You know, the guy talked about sex a lot and bullied people. A lot of anger going on. He did these rants, which were kind of funny as a pastor, but it was mostly confirmation bias and people would nod their heads and not really understand uh, who he was going after and why. Not sure Mark did or even now does. It was very heavily American Calvinist, you know, John Wesley thinking of Spurgeon even over there, you know, in Europe. But even Calvin, you know, I have been into Calvin some lately, even studying some of the stuff he said and realizing it doesn't mesh as much with American evangelicalism as as you would think from a lot of teachers here today. He gets a bad rap from some of the writings of Spurgeon and Wesley and, and some of these guys. Uh, so I'd gone from AC3, which was much more Anglican, to being taught more Calvinist kind of worldview. Philosophy is more heavy on the cross and the blood and you're a sinner and that stuff's important because it had me thinking differently but one of the things they couldn't take away from me was this understanding of the inner child and that's not just psychology but uh, but I knew that that's in the bible right because as a guy who read the bible and loves Jesus and the gospels this was Matthew 18 um the reconciliation right heavily unifying relationships kind of part chapter of Matthew and, and Jesus you know all the disciples coming up to Jesus and like who's the best right who's varsity and Jesus says a, a little child grabs a five-year-old and right puts him in his lap and goes this this is childlike faith this this and then he takes it a step further. Unless you can be like this, right? You you won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, which is that this kingdom language. This is really important. So a lot of this kind of legal heavy language, nutsy, boltsy, you know, Jesus stepped in and did this, and I I knew better. 
Mark was very much about growing up and be a man and ignoring a lot of this emotional side, this childlikeness. He was good at pointing out the childishness, but when it came to the childlikeness that's in all of us, some of that Imago Day, you know, the image of God in this childlike form, that little guy that wants to know he's cared for and safe and valuable. Maybe knowing it's the wrong word. We, we need to feel it to stop emotionally suppressing and feel that character in us, that part, that integral vulnerable part of who we are, especially as men. See, these are things I see now, but at the time I thought I was bringing my family and myself with all my wounds and all my scars. I thought we were going to the right place. And looking back, yeah, Mars Hill Church still changed my life. There was still a lot of good stuff I could glean from my time there. There's a lot of things I learned, but a lot of things I had to throw away. I had to let go of. Speaking of attitudes of sexual integrity, a lot of what I had to let go of was a, a certain kind of bravado attitude that Mark kind of exuded and that I, I found attractive in him, right, as a man, looking at another man in, in, in a way to do life. Like, here's pastor, follow me. But one of the things he said was, you know, if, if you have a pastor who's talking about porn every Sunday, right, or he's doing a sermon series on pornography or sex, odds are he struggles with it, you know. And and people would laugh, and that's but it's true, right? But the thing about Mark is that he never, like, he was kind of uh, taking a critical shot at that, but he didn't. He wasn't that honest himself. I mean, he sure he shared about his you know struggles with going on the road and and the adult channel and the motel. Like I thought that was pretty transparent to talk about from the pulpit, you know, as a pastor and having someone on the road with him as an accountability partner. That kind of thing was you know okay, right? But that's Christian sexual accountability 101 for its time. You know, and then Jay Stringer comes along and writes this book. My friend Seth Taylor writes the book Feels Like Redemption because, you know, none of this stuff is working. I mean, Triple X Church and Craig Gross and, and, and those folks down there are, realize this in spades and are willing to embrace what may not be popular for the sake of healing. May not be popular amongst Christian culture, that is. And getting into Jay Stringer's book, I started thinking about uh, sexual fantasies as kind of a gauge. See, because how we think about things and how we feel about things can be very different. Freud um, talking about, again, this, this childlikeness, childishness metaphor, Freud I, I talked about some of this in the early shows, how I, I said Freud being a, you know, atheist, uh, psychologist, 
just saw kids as just pure id, you know, like they're just lizard brain, you know, I, I want that hit you over the head with my wife was hit with a hammer when she was a little girl because some other kid wanted the toy she was playing with as one example of Freud's kids being the id, right? And so going beyond this just dualistic, childlike, childish um, uh, take on things that I've been talking about for only God knows how many years, one thing I've learned is that that kid in us feels bad, right? When when someone's hit over the head with a hammer, eventually, you know? And what in us, what in our emotional makeup is stirred by our sexual thought life and our sexual fantasies? It's making sense of some of those early shows where, again, I was turning my guns on my sexual thought life, you know, learning to control that because I, you know, I'd put the claw hammer to my wife like a an id, an impy little selfish kid in my own take, in my own understanding and worldview at the time. So this is where our thoughts about our sexual thought life can be like a gauge for our own humanity, for actually being able to accept ourselves as human beings. You know, we move our way up through adolescence and we become sexual beings with appetites and, you know, a, a makeup of how we think about and interact with our sexual selves. And we're going to have these fantasies, right? That's part of being human. And so how we think about them, how we think about our methods of arousal, dare I even say how we feel about them, is very important to our mental health and our, our, our well-being as whole, rounded-out human beings. So for me, I think all the intellectual stuff that came out in that first season, those first 40 shows especially, was... Uh, a lot of it was based out of shame and me trying to solve this dissonance around how I felt about the way I was viewing my own sexual thought life as hitting my wife with the hammer, right? This this attitude, this emotion in me, this hurt and turning the guns on my own thought life and my own sexuality was much like turning the guns on myself. And it bolstered up some of that shame in me. So going through the work that I did around my lack of compassion for nine-year-old me, uh, my lack of compassion for teenage me, who is another character that emerged through this healing work. The shame was what kept me in the unwanted behavior. Yeah, but Russ, seven years of purity... Or, uh, as I would call it, uh, sexual integrity. 
So yeah, I had some freedom or what I would call victory at the time. But looking back, it's like, you know, someone who's been in prison all their life gets a, a glimpse, gets a, a portion of freedom. And, and, it, and it feels really encouraging. Um, so on a kind of emotional yet nutsy, boltsy, functional level... I felt like, yeah, this is freeing. This is life-giving. I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to encourage others. And it's interesting, my theological understanding at the time, how I viewed not carrying heavy burdens, for example. And so I stopped the shame through propitiation or my understanding of the cross. Or, you know, I think there's something else spiritual going on in there. Whether we got it all figured out or not, God knows what God's doing. And, and there was healing taking place. And so where I'm at today, living in the light, you know, uh, secretless. Uh, I mean, that takes a lot more bravado and courage, right? Or bravado being courage being who you are made in the image of God as opposed to the theological understanding of viewing yourself as totally depraved like that's the core of your being is that you're id hopelessly egocentric without you know propitiation or something like that and so shedding the the Mark Driscoll or the manly man the manly Christian man approach to our sexual lives what if we had a new attitude what if we could get you know get a new attitude for men to actually be curious about our own stories and our own uh, our own arousal being aware of the hyper conservative view of deprivation and the hyper you know over here on the left the the equally self-destructive view of shallow entitlement what if we had the courage to view the wellspring of arousal our, our thoughts and some of this has to do with defining love this is what i found all right this is some of again studying stringer's book studying sexuality for a long time and i've talked about this early on in the show how you know love in the english speaking world is kind of a shallow thing right I love tacos. I love my wife. I've talked about that a lot in this show. Some of Stringer's research in men who buy sex, I, I found really interesting. And, and talking about love or talking about the sexual experience as, uh, as like meat, like men on some of these sites where they were rating you know, five stars for uh, Roxy or, or some prostitute, right? Uh, but they were just, the way they would describe them was like a steak or something. And dark meat and light meat and racial stuff. Um, but saying, I love it all. That, that appetite and tying it to the word love I found really interesting because we get back to this idea of satiation, right? We're looking for it. And maybe some of us have just given up hope on, on how we're going to find that love, that thing, that connection that we're looking for, that satiation. 
just looking for it in sexual acts and not the whole rounded out, well-balanced meal of love and relationship and connection. So for me, getting into this, I, I had to reconnect with you, you know, there's that, I remember, you know, you think about uh, the adult me, the adult version of me looking at nine-year-old me. It's like, oh, you, you know, like a dad and his kid. Hey, what are you doing? Or this, this attitude some crass dads can have towards their kids after a while and moms, right? Hey, you clean your room, you. I had that attitude towards my emotional self for a long time what psychology might call the inner child and what Jesus might call the part of our being that possesses childlike faith. And so I had to do some business with you, uh, with nine-year-old me, six-year-old me, um, and and teenage, about 17-year-old me. And it's funny how it took the fall of Mars Hill Church, for example, for me to see enough um, to, to put those eyes on, on those guys and have more of a, come here, you, you know, more of a, a loving, hey, hey, you, come, come in here, new attitude towards myself and my story. Speaking of healing on uh, Everclear's 2015 album, Black is the New Black, I love this song. Um, brought me to tears first time I heard it. This is a bumper by Everclear. some nostalgia <laughs> on some of those early episodes. I talked about how I did some of my best thinking right here in the car. And uh, so we're, we're ending out this episode here in the van. Cause uh, again, still true, man. You get some of my, like some of this emotion gets flowing. And I'm thinking about this, recording it on the spot. That's how this show uh, developed in the early days getting back to some of that here. Um, yeah, I know, not the pristine audio quality you may be used to laying there with your headphones on or <laughs> on the bus in your commute home or to work. I don't know, but again, bear with me here with the audio quality, all right? You're rolling down the road with me. It's you and me. Here you are in the passenger seat, and I'm... Uh, uh, telling you my story some, all right? So getting back to Jay Stringer's book, uh, Unwanted, he talks about this definition of shame, um, and, and I'm going by memory here, so this is an exact quote. Not an exact quote, all right? Uh, what he said was that shame, the, the, this feeling in us 
Um, It's an experience that is brought on by the things that we have done or have failed to do. It's kind of a reflection of our identity, right? Or how we think about and value ourselves. And another thing that Jay found in his research was that shame is the key driver in most unwanted sexual behavior, all right? Shame, not pleasure, not being triggered by, uh, you know, seeing some woman jogging or uh, an ad on television for Victoria's Secret. We we may think those things, and, and they may stir some sort of feelings in us, right? But deep down, our shame and the reason we're brought back to, you know, like this analogy of the dog returning to his vomit, right? Some of you have felt that way. Some of you have resonated with some of those words. Uh, Again, Jay is going to say, based on his research, like 300% of the time, men are triggered by shame, all right? And women, their unwanted sexual behavior, 546% of the time when they're brought back to the unwanted sexual behavior, whether that's pornography or you know hookup apps or, or, or the things that we do to get off, you know, using those words, it's, it's triggered by shame. It's triggered by that feeling of unworthiness, of unwanted. We are, in our being are unwanted. We feel that, those feelings and those reflections and those thoughts about our own being run so incredibly deep. And so disarming shame is, first of all, realizing that we tend to go back to the vomit, right? We tend to go back to the unwanted behavior to help reaffirm that feeling about ourselves. Shame does that. Shame is a reaffirming of how I'm alone, how I'm not gonna measure up, how I can't talk to the opposite sex, some of you guys, right? Um, Just whatever fits that negative, not just negative, but demeaning and diabolical story of value about our own selves, about our own being. Again, what does this have to do with sexual fantasies, right? The sexual need, right? This feeling of sexual need pops up and I'm more likely, instead of like, for example, telling my spouse, telling my wife how I feel in the current moment about what's going on in me or in our relationship, um, it's just much easier, I feel, to run to pornography. And even even that idea that it's much easier is another way of of devaluing myself. Because you know what, Russ, you know what you do? You go for the easier thing, because that's who you are, right? Like there's a thing in me that keeps saying that to myself. So I'm gonna tell you a story about sexual fantasies, 
a couple of stories, and, and this is going to get explicit, all right? Uh, but it, hopefully, it'll it'll bring uh, a window into my life and my story. Jay, I think it's chapter two in Jay's book. He has uh, a lot of different folks who tell their story. Uh, it, you know, he uses some of the because he's a therapist, right? Like he talks about some of his clients. And, and what I've been through is extreme, all right? I'm an ex-criminal drug addict. So yes, my story a little more extreme than a lot of uh, uh, my friend Jay Stringer's demographic. Uh, and that's been a, a kind of a cool thing. I'm going to turn my vehicle off here now. Sitting in downtown Seattle, all right? 8th Avenue and Olive. Uh, as I record this, see, it's weird. Like I'm now, I'm kind of like I just digressed because this is getting into some of the more harder things to talk about. Um, but yeah, my my story a little more a uh, little more extreme again. So I, I wanted to tell tell you guys about these two situations where my sexual fantasies to use that word, my fantasy life uh, really helped me understand where I was at. It helped me heal, okay? That was another message I got from some listeners to the show. Like, the fact that you your story is that extreme gives me hope, one guy said, right? Like, he's like, you know, he's like, hey, man, if you can see freedom from this thing... Um, I, I, I believe I can as well, like because because my story is so extreme. Again, I digress, but let's go back. So, um, I never had a Christian counselor ask, actually ask me about my sexual fantasies, right, or what kind of porn I liked and why. And, and it would be weird, you know, for a Christian counselor to ask that. I thought, right, like I don't know, because there just seemed to be so much. Um, in the sin department, right? Like we have to classify that as sin. We put it in a folder, put a rubber stamp on it, mark sin. So that's, you know, that's off limits. We're not going to talk about that. Part of the season six is, is me healing and going through a year's worth of trauma therapy. Um, my, my therapist, Susan, uh, probably one of the best therapists I've ever had, by the way. And she was free, which is interesting. It wasn't. It wasn't free, right? There's a, there's a grant that's paid through Providence Hospital that makes the Dawson Center, which is a place for folks who um, are survivors of childhood sexual assault. That's that's what I was doing there. Um, that's why that place is, exists. Uh, so. I'm there, Susan, and Susan asks me in one session. This is this is EMDR, by the way. This is a little deeper kind of therapy than than talk therapy, and I'll explain some of that in a minute. But she asked me a question. She says, she says, Russ, because I talked about how I, I started looking at pornography again, and a lot of it was to alleviate this feeling of shame. Like, you know what? I'm gonna do this because. I'm not going to hell, right? Like there's all this, all this feelings around it, and the things we tell ourselves, and and all of the stuffing and repression 
that I had done for years, I had finally felt what was bubbling on the surface again was a desire to not just masturbate or have orgasms, but to, 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 to try and snuff out some of this feeling of shame, some of this identity of shame that was going on in me. Uh, so, so, I, so again, that's why I, I looked at pornography and I talked about that in episode one or so of this, uh, this season of shows my relapse, to use that word. I don't like that kind of language anymore, not because that's not what it was, but I think that language doesn't go to the depths. This is not like me picking up a bottle of Jack Daniels again and, and drinking it or, or something like that. Even that goes to coping mechanisms and, and there's something going on below the surface. And that word relapse tended to trigger in me um, again, this emotional reaction that I wasn't going to be able to do it, right? Uh, you know, and I talked about that, how it takes practice, like like practicing playing guitar. Um, I talked about feeling like it's a, it's a mountain to climb, right? Getting sexually sober, to use those words. Uh, you know, and feeling like when you relapse, you're... You've rolled all the way to the bottom of the mountain when you've only rolled, you know, a couple hundred yards or whatever, right? Um, a couple of feet. You only rolled a couple of feet. You don't feel bad. And that, and sure, that makes, you know, you, you put that little story in your head and it tends to have us feel a little better. But really, um, I, I'm getting away from the language of climbing a mountain when it comes to this thing now. And the reason being is that shame, and again, this is a lot of the research that's out there. Um, Jay Stringer's book, there's a lot of social science behind it. Um, shame is like a predator, all right? And we think we're going after behavior, but what really is going on is below the surface is the, this great white shark known as shame. And it's the thing that keeps taking us down. We think we just can't, well, I just can't get right, or I'm just a sexual creature who needs orgasms all the time. You know, we, no, that's not it. It's, it's, it's shame. It's that feeling, and it's, it's something that we need to face. So, back to my uh, looking at pornography again on the internet through modern devices. And sure, I could use the language of, oh, it was a weak moment and I fell, you know. I've done that hundreds and hundreds of times. That same language and that same very familiar predatory feeling. For me, and this is before I read Jay's book, this is before, you know, I even, <laughs> I even, uh, uh, interviewed him before he wrote the book, right? Um, what what was going on? And, and Jay puts this into words so well. Is it an analogy? And uh, he heard about this interview from uh, uh, one of the cameramen who does the show Shark Week on Discovery Channel. Um, and this guy was asked, like, you're down there with great white sharks and a camera. Like, what do you do when a great white shark starts swimming directly at you? 
And he said, well, he says, I, I take a preemptive strike. You know, he goes, I swim towards the great white shark with the camera. And, and sometimes I'll use this big camera which I bump him in the nose because the shark starts to think, like I'm a predator, everything swims away from me and here this thing is swimming at me and fish, all right, there is something in them. When, when you start coming at it, it runs away from you. And he says more often than not, and he still has all his limbs to prove this to be true, that when he swims towards the shark with the camera to bump it in the nose, usually it doesn't get that far, the shark swims away. And so part of this, I think, if I am to assess my growth and my journey through my own healing in my life and, and even doing this podcast and studying sexuality uh, and, and the, the science behind wh why we do what we do with our genitals. <laughs> um, part of it, I think, really was that. Like, I wanted to go after the shame because I had so much pride in to use that word, right? My ego really liked the fact that I had seven years of sexual sobriety where I didn't even masturbate. And I think that part of me thought that that is what was holding me together emotionally um, as, a, as, a, as a whole person. That I wasn't, and even though my marriage was fractured, I was still struggling with um, bouts of depression and even mania in my life uh, but yeah man sexually sober <laughs> thumbs up got that no there was that thing in me of shame pulling and poking at me and it needed uh, it needed attention so back to me with Susan my therapist right and I'm sitting there session is starting and she asks me this question she says uh Tell me about the porn that you've uh, consumed that makes you feel the most dirty, right? Or, or the most disturbing. What's the most disturbing kind of porn, Russ, that you consumed and, and, and felt the most horrible about? And I said, I said gangbang porn. Like... There's something in me that really sought after gangbang porn, but not just any gangbang porn, right? Like, I liked gangbang porn where the woman uh, who is having sex with five, six, seven guys is feeling like she's into it, you know? Like, it looks like she's into what's happening to her. <sighs> You know, I didn't like ones where it looked like rape or something like that. Like, those kind of disturbed me and made me feel like, oh, God, you know, find something else. But ones where, where the woman was, you know, she seemed to get pleasure out of it or something like that. That's what kind of disturbed me. And she goes, okay, well, we're going to go into that. And EMDR, which stands for um, Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, is uh, is what EMDR is. So, in an EMDR session, um, I'm encouraged to to breathe 
all right? Take deep breaths, all right? We're going to go to this safe place that I've set up in this EMDR session. Like I'm in this, this cabin, it's in the woods, and everything's warm inside, even though there's cold outside. Um, and, and I'm going to, to leave this safe sanctuary and I'm going to, um, I'm going to venture out into the cold and we're going to, to go into this, this little feeling that this story, this, this place, uh, emotionally that we had just stirred up in talking about my, uh, my most disturbing, um, porn consumption so I'm breathing and in each one of my hands is a buzzer so this is in scientific terms is bilateral stimulation where I'm feeling it buzz in my right hand it buzzes in my left hand it buzzes in my right hand spending some time breathing uh, walking out into the cold and um, alright Russ what are you feeling now what are you seeing now I'm brought to a like a dreamlike place. It's not hypnotic. Like I'm still awake. I'm I'm there, but it, it's hard to describe. Like much like your mind would start to form a dream. You know, this movie starts playing, and what pops up on the screen is a familiar sight that we've processed before in some earlier sessions, and it's uh, it's the trailer that I was molested in, in this trailer park that I lived in when I was a kid, all right? After my mom and dad got divorced, uh, there I was in this trailer park. And and let me set your mind at ease a little bit. Uh, what you're about to hear in this story is not me recounting childhood sexual assault or abuse, all right? Yeah, I did process that in an EMDR session, but I'm not gonna talk about that here. I'm not gonna do that publicly, all right? It's just way too graphic, and even talking about this is kind of hard for me to do. I think that's why I feel way more comfortable um, talking about it here in the van, for whatever reason. And listen, yeah, my, my story's extreme, all right? But, what I learned from uh, reading slash listening to Jay Stringer's book is that a lot of your stories out there are very familiar. Like the voices of shame and where they come from, um, just really familiar. And, and, and I mean, pornography nowadays, I mean, there's a whole genre of stepsister, stepbrother porn. And... Um, just relationships with parents, triangulation with mom for some of you guys, or, or dad for some of you ladies. There seems to be this weird thing in culture where, where men are supposed to, you know, as soon as your daughter starts to blossom as a young woman and starts to date other guys, we're supposed to get a shotgun and protect her from, you know, the, the fact that he may be interested in her sexually. Like, some of that, even culturally, it, it, it has this weird connective tissue. And I can hear some of you out there, right? Like you're, <laughs> some of the hyper-conservative Christians out there are thinking, oh, so what are you saying, Russ, that, you know, 
if a stepbrother and stepsister hook up, like they shouldn't feel ashamed of that, right? Is that what you're saying, Russ? Um, the, the Bible talks about, you know, the Corinthians. Uh, the Apostle Paul goes into Corinth, and this guy asks, all right, so if the law is done away with, can we just do whatever we want? And, and he says, he says, yes, everything for you is lawful, but not everything is good for you, right? Not everything is is life-giving and life-sustaining. Um, so, no. Although, you know, life is weird like that. Like, my wife and I have some friends who are married. They, they just passed their silver anniversary as a married couple, and they are actually stepbrother and stepsister, all right? They met when they were teenagers. And that may be a little weird and taboo for they don't tell that to everyone, but that's their story. And, and uh, you know, we just don't know. Life is complex, all right? People's stories are complex. And, and there's another extreme example of, of what I'm talking about here. But I just wanted to share with you this, this session because a lot of clarification came from from what I'm about to, to share with you here as far as how shame works and operates and and spoke to me in my life how it affected anxiety and depression and some of the roots of addiction but yeah that is part of my story all right childhood sexual assault the first time I heard this song, it brought me to tears. This is ever clear. Uh, the lyrics in that first line of the song, um, and, and whoever wrote this, their story is very much like mine. Except I was nine years old. All the scars on my body and soul All the trouble I've known Things I'll say and do all comes back to a little boy back when life was new to me. Hiding in my room, waiting for my mom to leave. I learned to lie to save her from the truth. I was raped when I was eight years old on a sunny afternoon. There it is in front of me again. Looking at the door with crime tape on it, realizing I'm at this horrible, desecrated place in my past and in my memory. These feelings of, you know, I've processed this, right? I've processed this, but there's something else going on. Like I'm realizing I have a different level of confidence and I'm not as fearful as I had been in previous sessions where we're dealing with this scene. So I've already dealt with, by this time, I've already dealt with that scene of, of rape, right? That was a 
a horrible session. You know, I made it through that session. There was a time I just dropped the things and I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. And then we got back into it. It took us another 10 minutes of breathing. I get back into it and I had processed that scene before. So at this time in my therapy, at this session, I'm sitting there feeling an edge of confidence and going, no, like something horrible happened here, but I am, I am not afraid, which was a kind of a cool new place for me. And after I, right after I said that, right after I said, I'm not afraid, these two like detective police officers come out of the trailer and they're pulling back the door and the crime tape breaks and they're picking up, I don't know if you ever saw CSI or one of these shows where they put down little markers for where bullets have been fired or shell casings were found. Like they're picking up some of these things off the floor. I can see them doing that. And so curiously, I walk up these little crappy stairs up into the trailer and this detective looks at me and says, ah, you can't come in here, man. This is a crime scene. And, uh, and this is where EMDR gets weird. Right? Like this is where it's not like, it's not like talk therapy. So I, I'm like, okay, so I back away and I'm standing on the porch and part of me turns into like a ghost. Oh, and by the way, I'm seeing myself at about nine years old. That's what age I am as I stand there on the porch. And, and, and this ghost part of me leaves my body and walks in the trailer anyway. Emotionally, on the inside, I'm walking into that trailer. I'm walking into that place where this horrible thing happened. And, and I was wrapped in a sleeping bag. So that's what happened to me, all right? This kid wrapped me, this older guy, I was nine about at the time, wraps me tightly in a sleeping bag and, and uh, pulls my tidy whities off and, and, and that's what happened in that place. But when I walk into the scene, I see a murder, uh, right? Like a murder investigation. And I see this, this sleeping bag and I see blood all over the place and again shell casings like like whoever was was there in the sleeping bag was shot and murdered right and that sort of felt like that 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 part of my childhood self being murdered um again uh, that's why i'm so grateful for uh, paul young or william paul young who wrote the shack you know him coming on this show when he did and I had me at the place I was when I interviewed him um, that's one of the things he said anyway I'm not going to digress into that but one of the things Paul Young said is that 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 Mackenzie in the in the book and the movie um, and Missy both represent him all right Missy is murdered in in the shack the story of the shack um, and, and, and I was feeling that not that and I wasn't even thinking about the shack. Like the shack hadn't came into my mind, but just the way that my body was processing what happened, I was feeling like, okay, I was murdered here as a child, right? This is where the childhood innocence, the, the, the normal life that a lot of folks have ended, all right? This is where my sexual experience as a, as a man and as a boy got totally fucked up, right? Like this is where I, I was murdered. So again, about this time, it seemed like the police or the crime unit was sort of wrapping up their investigation. 
and ghost me turns his head and looks over towards the, uh, like we're in the living room area, but this kind of corner in the living room area where there's this TV, a fuzzy kind of TV, right? And, and three kids sitting in front of it. And all three of these kids are about six or seven years old. They're all boys. And they're staring at this TV with the fuzz and the static, right? Much like the, the film Poltergeist, if you guys have ever seen that. They're just staring at this TV. And um, young ghost me, all right, starts walking towards the TV. And as I get closer to it, I can hear voices coming out of it, right? Like there's this horrible voice that's coming out of the TV saying all these nasty things to these boys, right? Like you are, you're, you're not valuable, you know, you're dirty, your, your sexuality, your sexual curiousness makes you defiled, you know, just your, your sinful beyond redemption. All these just horrible little statements are coming out of this fuzzy TV, this voice. Excuse me while I grab a, a drink of water here. As I am now sitting at the University of Washington, <laughs> the magic of editing. Um, so back to the scene. The, the boys sitting in front of the TV, they're sort of in, in this kind of ghostly, uh, kind of transparent, right? Like you could tell that they're there. They're not really acknowledging my presence. Their eyes are just locked on this fuzzy screen. And I think to myself, I'm going to need some help here, right? So ghost me walks out of the trailer and out onto the porch where, where me, like nine-year-old me in physical form, was standing there because the police wouldn't let him in, right? And as I'm walking out, I see this cop and he's, he's hunched down and he's talking to nine-year-old me and he says, he says, hey man, like, do you have parents around? Like, what are you doing here? Why are you on this porch, right? Like, you need to go and, and maybe talk, talk to your parents or something. And, and then, and this is another character that's showed up in my EMDR sessions, um, me at teenage form, all right? So all of a sudden I walk up, I'm about 17 years old, and I walk up in the scene and I'm like, hey, he's my little brother, right? Like I'm saying this to the cop and, uh, and all of a sudden he's gone. Right. As soon as teenage me walks up, the, the, the cop looks at teenage me and I looked like someone you, uh, you might be scared of. Right. Like I remember I dressed with, you know, I dressed like a punk rocker or more of a metal head, I guess at the time, cause I had really long bushy hair. Right. Like I tried to look like my hair was like Bon Jovi or something, you know, and I would wear leather jackets and, and like offensive rock t-shirts and stuff, you know, chain belts, you know, and all this stuff. Like I looked like someone, there was a few times where, you know, I'd walk by older people's cars and they would lock the door, you know, that's how I looked at the time. So I'm, I'm walking up 
towards this cop going, yeah, it's my little brother, you know, and I'll take care of this. The cop looks at me and then he looks back where nine-year-old me was standing and he's gone, right? Like he's disappeared. And I think somehow, again, here's where my therapist would say, dad, don't overthink it, <laughs> right? Just go with what your mind is, is producing. Um, I think the idea is getting you out of your, your head because our mind, right, that tends to try and protect us. So we'll, we'll just throw a bunch of thoughts at something that we don't want to process as a way. That's why I think EMDR, I like EMDR more than I like talk therapy because I did years of talk therapy, years of it. But I think that just the way my mind works, I would jump in, you know, even change the subject or something. In this, you're kind of being pulled along emotionally through this story. Okay, so back to the scene. It's a sunny day. Metal, punk, grunge rock Russ Shaw walks towards this, this police officer and he's like, stop, right? He's got his hand out. He's like, you can't come in here. You can't come nowhere near this place. And uh, this is where I got stuck for a while. Like, it ghost me is like, oh, crap, what do I do? Like, I'm, you know... I, I, I'm, I'm, I've got these three boys. They're in there watching this fuzzy TV. I could use some help here. Teenage me shows up on the scene, and this almost like Agent Smith in the Matrix kind of authority figure is saying, no, you can't come in. You can't do this. You can't go in there. So teenage me is standing there on the porch, and I'm, I'm, I'm caught, right? I, I get caught in this loop where... I want to go in there, and then and then Susan would ask me, "What are you seeing now?" And I'm I'm seeing little ghost me sitting there with the other two boys or three boys, right? And, and we're watching this fuzzy TV, and all these horrible things are coming out of it. These these voices of shame, these things like you know, you're a dirty boy. You can never tell. We, we can't talk about this, you know. You, you're you're disgusted. If, if people knew about this, this appetite of yours, this desire of yours, this need of yours, it, it, they just wouldn't accept you, you know. And so I, I want to rush in there, but the police again are standing there, and and and, I, and and Susan goes, and Susan goes, "Where's Leo?" All right. Now Leo in my life is, uh, I gotta turn on the AC here, man. It is warm in the van right now. Um, Leo is a, a guy who's been on the show in the past. Uh, we lost Leo to cancer in April of 2016. Um, dear friend of mine, we went through redemption groups together uh, he was my redemption group leader at Marsville Church. Uh, Leo was a great guy, a great friend. And while, you know, in this session where we're, we're setting things up for EMDR, you know, she asks me, like, you need a guard, you need a, a, a something to guard your, your safe, you know, your locker of stuff that we may have to lock away if a session ends, you know. Um, and, and, and someone who, who will, will aid you, you know, in times of trouble. Um, 
and for me that's Leo all right and in my you know in my EMDR world he's an angel and he's got wings and everything and he's you know he's he's kind of pasty white in color but he's angel Leo and so so teenage me again standing on the porch cops won't let me in um, ghost me is is being is starting to sit Indian style in front of the TV with the other boys and and I'm like uh, and so Leo walks up all of a sudden right I, I call Leo and in my mind and, and Leo walks up like an answer to prayer right this this angel Leo walking up and he and he I see him as an angel and he, and he transforms into like this again this like agent looking dude he's wearing a suit you know he's he's uh he looks like a, an FBI agent or something like that right and he walks up to the to the trailer you know he gives me a wink and he walks into the trailer the, the guys you know the cops in there are like whoa what are you doing here he flashes a badge and goes you guys need to leave he goes I got this from here and they're like, what? And he goes, I'm FBI. You guys need to clear out of here right now. You know? And so all these, you know, CSI guys and, and police, uh, they leave. They leave the place. And then Leo stands out. He goes out of the trailer. He walks down the steps. And then he kind of puts his hand out, pointing to the door. And so teenage me um, approaches the trailer as I walk through the door of the trailer, I instantly shrink down to, uh, I'm nine years old again, all right? I'm nine years old, and I walk in to ghost me and these other ghostly kids, and this TV is spouting all this horrible stuff, and, and I grab the TV, right? And the two kids, you know, they're kind of looking at me, sort of dazed and confused ghost me kind of reintegrates into stands up and you know gets sucked into my physical body at this point and uh and and it's it's like whoa what are you doing like the tv starts speaking to me you know almost like that red lizard story the tv starts going hey what's going on what are you doing and then i start hearing like christian radio stuff you know some of the stuff pastor said in the past was was kind of soul crushing you know you can get out of God's favor um, you can have your your name erased from the book of life but these little snippets start coming out of the TV all while that same voice is going you know Oh, you think you got me, and they think you could, what are you doing? Who do you think you are, right? I pick up the TV, and my little arms and my little legs are buckling. And this is one of those big, old, fuzzy TVs, you know, with, with the wood cabinet around it. And I, and I pick it up all by myself, you know, no ghosts helping me or anything. I pick it up. You know, I put it up on my back and I'm walking out the door and my knees are kind of buckling. And as I, I kind of maneuver it through the front door of this little trailer home, uh, my, my knees start to buckle and, and, I, and it's like, you better not drop me, it says, right, the TV. And, and I drop it. 
and it crash, you know, and it's all fuzzy and stuff. And uh, and then all of a sudden I'm teenage me again, right? And I'm standing there and I'm looking at the TV and then nine-year-old me is standing there too. And I look down at him and he's kind of smiling at me. And the other two boys, I don't know where they went, all right? But I I'm standing there with the TV. It's all like sparks are coming off it. Like it's still playing even though it's unplugged at this point. Um, but we kick it down the stairs. So it goes boom, boom, and crash all over the ground like this, you know, concrete driveway there. And it busts into these little pieces. And the tube of it is still fuzzy, you know? And the little speaker is laying on the ground, and it's still spouting off different stuff. And there's these little, you know, shamey Christian sound bites coming out of it. And, uh, and, and Teenage Me grabs... Um, like a, there's a shovel over to the side and he grabs the shovel I don't know why it's not a sledgehammer but there was a shovel and he smashes it and it boom and it explodes and breaks into a million pieces and there's all these parts right and all this debris is there and Leo's standing there and he's a big smile on his face you know and, and teenage me looks at little me and little me is like, you know, standing back and he goes, he goes, we did it. We did it, you know? And, uh, and about this time, Leo is back to being Leo. And my friend Leo was, uh, he was like a maintenance guy, you know? And he would do like property management of different places. Like I'm sitting in a parking lot here right now and, and he would, you know, clean up the dumpster area and, and make sure the, you know, the beauty bark in the area was all good. Like stuff like that is what he did. So he comes out with a, with like a shovel. He takes the shovel that I smashed the TV with, right? And, and he takes a broom and he starts cleaning this stuff up. And in the back of the area where the trailer was, was this uh, burning barrel, right? And, and we start picking up the stuff and we're throwing it in the burning barrel. This TV, all the wood particles, and you know, we're just dumping it in the, the burning barrel. And, uh, and all of a sudden this cross appears above the burning barrel, right? And it has Jesus on it and, and, and just a beautiful old wooden cross. And you know, the, the, that music starts playing this old rugged cross you know, it kind of starts playing in the back. That old hymn sung by Johnny Cash, right? In my in my dream, in my EMDR world. And and Leo's like, you know, oh yeah, you know, it's a lot like that, is it? This is just like the gospel, you know? And Leo and I, like Leo is a very Christian-y dude, right? You know, so, so I'm starting to go, yeah, Leo, okay, right? And I said, but don't you dare say, you know, we nailed it to the cross, <laughs> you know, because that was another one of those Christian-y cliche things that I just like, oh, right? Like, and, and he just kind of smiled and he goes, and he goes, it is so much more than that, you know, so much more than that. And all of those, those little, you know, those little Christian-y lines, the, those little things that bugged me, they all kind of came up in this smoke and they all kind of clinged to this old cross and while the metal part that showed Jesus like this old Catholic thing I'm not even right Catholic but the, the Jesus on the cross like the metal part it stayed there and then it kind of turned gold and then the wood part of the cross 
fell into the fire. Right? And it started burning with all these little notes attached to it. All these shamey little things that I had in my life. Um, and, and not just not just Christian things, but things that the, that the guy said. And it wasn't that these people were bad or anything. Like, I see that. Like, I took a lot of the stuff that he used to keep us quiet. Um, and, 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 and it just, all of that had the shame attached to it. So all of the energy... Alright? To put this in, in energy terms, all of the energy was kind of burnt like fuel, you know? Like it wasn't it wasn't destroyed and then gone. It was it was burnt like fuel to to move me forward, I felt like. And that and that was really beautiful. And as the as the old rugged cross music kind of dies out, that song, you know. I'm, I'm only here for a short time, you know. Hey, get off the cross so we could use the wood. Uh, uh, that song, I forget the name of that song. Um, but but that, that song is, is playing as well. And, and we close out the session with Leo and I and nine-year-old me. And we're kind of integrated, right? I feel like this, this part of us, we became one in this session, nine-year-old me and teenage me. And it was really beautiful. And uh, and that was that was my EMDR session. And that was when sexual fantasies led me to a place where I was able to process something really important in my life. Something really life-giving and freeing. Something that I feel God was leading me into. That the Holy Spirit, you want to call it that, right? For those of you, whatever you believe, all right? Uh, the, the Spirit, the universe. Uh, I had to come to that place. And my sexual fantasies were, were a way to lead me into a depth of healing that I couldn't even imagine. And now I'm ready to live my life, you know? Not that I haven't been before, but it, it's scary, I still have my challenges and my issues, but I'm, 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 I'm freer. I'm just way more free. Different energy about me. Um, love you guys. That's the end of the show, man. I just wanted to share that with you. And, and hopefully, uh, if you want to hear more episodes like this, uh, you could donate to the podcast. I would certainly appreciate that. Again, ASI247.org, Venmo, at the letter C, Russ Shaw, on Venmo, um, is a way you can donate to this thing. This has always been a listener-supported podcast, and um, some of you, I, I think that donations have waned because my theology, maybe, like some of you guys were thinking I'm way out there, or... Um, becoming like Rob Bell or someone like that, right? I actually do like Rob Bell now, by the way. I'll be honest, when I didn't like Rob Bell, it was because I didn't read any of his stuff. I just listened to what other people who I thought had the answers, you know, what they said about him. And most of it was bad, you know? And uh, Mark Driscoll and that whole, those guys are gone. 
James McDonald and Harvest, um, Willow Creek and Bill Hybels, the Roman Catholic Church, um, all of these organizations would call guys like myself, all right, and Rob Bell heretics. And uh, that's why they crucified Jesus also, by the way. He has a book called What is the Bible, which is a great read. I think you should all read it. Um, you, you need to, like, seriously, if you want to see freedom and wholeness, you may have to start reading The Heretics, all right? Do I agree with everything Rob Bell says? Of course not. I don't agree with everything anybody says, all right? So, you know, but again, you got to open your mind. you got to be able to trust the, the in Christness, the Holy Spirit in you. In Him we move, live, and have our being. There's there's parts of your theology that, that you really have to realize are not super personal, you know? Um, they might need to go by the wayside. Deconstruction is a part of this. Relationship with God. Union with the Father in Heaven, all right? Well, Jesus is awesome, but God, you know, God the Father is kind of a jerk. No. No. He's never let you go. He's never left you or forsaken you. And hopefully, my prayer is that your takeaway from this is that all of these parts of ourselves, right down to even our sexual fantasies, it's not God's wrath. That, that bad things happen, for example, that, that even in, in judgment and, and words of wrath in the New Testament, you break those words down into the language that they were written in, and, and they're not punitive. There's ten different words for, like, judgment, and, and only one is punitive, and that's the one that the religious elitists would use, usually to control people. These words are about restoration, about reconciliation about uh, redemption much like a loving agape father would have for his son or daughter hopefully you're realizing what religion uh, has done in your life and and has had you believe different things about God the Father and God the Son because if we believe and we we feel Christians that you you love God, right? That God is love, which God? Jesus or the Father? I'm saying Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, they're one. And if we are created in God's image, if we are Imago Day at our core, not totally depraved, but made in the image of God, then God's truth is also our truth about us. That the farther in you go, the farther you walk, you know, with the, the Holy Spirit's guidance into the depths of your life, into the, uh, the hurt that may be down in there, you're, you're not alone. You are loved. 
there is healing and life and beauty. And uh, I'm going to end this episode right there. Thanks for listening. Um, two hours. Wow. Thanks for, if you're still with me in this episode, in this little audio book here. Um, again, thanks for your support. Those of you who, uh, whether it's Venmo or ASI247.org, thanks for keeping this thing alive. Um, Until we may meet again, my listeners and friends to this here podcast, my fellow kindred spirits, my name is Rush Shaw, signing off. appreciate all that all the all the praise and the glory but uh, it uh, it doesn't change the way I feel about anything really I just do what I do and just hope the people enjoy it and just try to be myself in whatever I do just as John Cash Attitudes of sexual integrity. Do you like what you hear? Here? Please leave a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you may be hearing this podcast. The podcast, Attitudes of Sexual Integrity, is owned by Digital Audio Project LLC, who is responsible for its contents. <laughs>